Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 79 for the first third of July 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the movie John Carter and Richard C. Hoagland's claims that it's a leak by those in the know. First, a warning. This episode will have several audio clips of Richard Hoagland. For those prone to violence upon hearing craziness, you may wish to cover your ears. With that said, we'll start right off with a clip, because I think it's important to hear the basic claim from the person themselves, as opposed to me just summarizing it. We are living in a suppressed culture, which if my research and a lot of other people that are on this show is correct, we are being spoon-fed just enough to keep us alive, but not enough to really let us advance, which is exactly the core concept of Stanton's film about Mars. I mean, if I had written that story myself, I couldn't have done it better. Probably he has done it light years better than I could because he's an expert and I'm not in filmmaking. The point is what he has put in on film mirrors what we have found in reality about secrets that are being kept from us to keep us down on the farm. And it's going to take a huge game changer to blow the doors off the vault where they're keeping all the cool stuff like the film describes so that we all get to use it and it benefits all of humankind. That's what's at stake, no less than the future survival and destiny of the human race. With that in mind, Richard promised during his April 2nd, 2012 interview that he would post on his website a detailed analysis of his claims as soon as the movie was released to DVD and Blu-ray and various other formats. He never posted his synopsis. So everything in this episode is based on his singular interview on the subject, and I have searched and I have not been able to find any other place where he talks about this. To understand his claims, a bit of background and a movie summary is in order. Edgar Rice Burroughs was an American author who lived from 1875 to 1950, and he wrote many different kinds of things in many different genres. He's best known for creating Tarzan and John Carter of Mars, the latter of which is the subject of this episode. Burroughs wrote 11 books in his series of the John Carter of Mars stuff, and they were serialized in various pulp fiction magazines throughout the 19-teens through the 1940s. John Carter was the first-person narrator in several of them, and he was the protagonist. He's a fictional Earthman who was teleported to Mars, which is called Barsoom in the books by the natives. He was writing during an era that was rife with depictions of Mars harboring human-like life, and especially a dying Mars where the population was attempting to prolong their existence. This came from a simple mistranslation. The Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli observed features on Mars in 1878 that he termed canali, which is Italian for channels. It was mistranslated to English as canals, and Percival Lowell, an American, published extensive maps of these canals, or channels, which were really just imagined by him in the decades that followed. So this idea of a dying Martian civilization during the present era was well publicized at the time that Burroughs was writing. There were many different themes in his John Carter series, including the American frontier, racial and class division, intellectualism, the paradox of superiority, 
where if you're superior, you still have to have underlings doing stuff for you, which makes you actually inferior, because if they weren't doing stuff, then you wouldn't be superior. Another theme was, perhaps more interestingly for some of my audience, religious deception. He wasn't anti-religious, but he was very concerned about the followers of any faith placing their trust in religious and people leading religious stuff, and then being abused and exploited by those in charge. He saw this as a common feature of many organized religions. For example, after reaching the age of 1,000 years, nearly every Martian is supposed to make a pilgrimage to the River Is, or on the River Is, where their religion says that they'll find a valley of paradise. Instead, they find a death trap that's populated by various deadly animals and overseen by a race of cannibalistic priests known as the Therns. It's the Therns themselves, the White Martians, who perpetuate this religious belief of a pilgrimage through a network of spies across the entire planet. So that gives you a taste of the genre. John Carter himself is a Virginian from the United States who fought for the Confederacy in the American Civil War, or if you're from the South, the War of Northern Aggression. After the war, he and a friend became gold prospectors. They found gold in Arizona, and when hiding in a cave, he appears to die, and a facsimile of him is transported to Mars, duplicating everything about him. In the books, he's also an immortal, and always about 30 years old in appearance. That part isn't really discussed in the movie. What makes him a hero is his manner and courtesy that was characteristic of the antebellum South, also known as Southern Kindness today for those who aren't USAian. What makes him capable of being a hero on Barsoom is its gravity. The premise is that since Mars' gravity is less than Earth's, John Carter's musculature, bone density, and other things let him be much stronger and able to jump much higher and farther than a Martian, or Barsoonian. And I should mention that the books have expired copyrights, so you can find them for free online, such as uh, Project Gutenberg and various other places. Now for the movie spoilers, although since the movie's been out for over a year, I don't really feel guilty about talking about spoilers. The movie is based on several of the books, and it's based on the characters, but there are significant differences. The important cast of characters are John Carter, Dejah Thoris, and the Therns. John Carter I've already described. Dejah Thoris is a princess of a city-state on Mars, the one city-state in civil war with another, being controlled by another guy who's being manipulated by the Therns, but more about that later. Dejah Thoris, besides being a princess, is about as close to a heroine as you can get while having the hero still be a man. She's also the chief scientist in her city-state, Helios. In the beginning of the movie, she's about to be able to harvest the power of the Ninth Ray, which will allow them to defeat their enemies and restore Mars to a lush and life-full and bearing planet. But she's thwarted by the Therns from discovering it and proving her ideas. Unlike in the books, the Therns are not Martians. Rather, they are an immortal alien race that has existed forever, and exist for the purpose of leading to the destruction of civilizations and planets themselves. They're able to manipulate what's called the Ninth Ray, which is what Hoagland equates to his hyperdimensional physics, but more on that after this spoiler summary thing. In the movie, the Ninth Ray is very, very poorly defined, and all we really see are its effects. But it's what gives the Therns their abilities, and it's effectively a technology as opposed to magic. 
The ninth ray manifests as blue stuff. It's able to render a person immobile, kill them, or control them. It's able to be projected as a weapon, an energy beam, a floating platform that someone can effectively fly on, and the ability to teleport from one place to another and change appearance. Basically, it lets them do what they need to do to make the movie move along. It's also described at one point to either control or actually be innumerable tiny machines. In the books, there are seven rays, which are the colors of the rainbow that we see here on Earth. The other two are colors that we never see on Earth. The eighth ray is what makes light move, and it's the propulsion ray that propels their craft, and which the Martians can capture in bladders, and is what makes their craft fly. The ninth ray in the books is what lets them work their atmospheric plant to provide enough oxygen for everything on Barsoom to live. So, the movie and the book are pretty different on this point. By way of a very, very brief summary of the plot, we see early on in the movie that the Therns give the enemy of Helios a very tiny bit of ninth ray power, giving him the ability to defeat Helios. By way of avoiding destruction, the leader betroths his daughter, Deja, to the guy. Meanwhile, John Carter kills a Thern on Earth and is accidentally teleported to Mars after he takes the Thern's medallion. And it's the medallion that lets them control the ninth ray, although John doesn't know how to do it. On Mars, he discovers his powers, the enhanced musculature letting him jump, basically. He's captured and later escapes the Green Martians after rescuing a fleeing Deja from her suitor. All he wants to do is get back to Earth in his cave of gold. So they travel the river Is. Deja starts to believe him that he's really from a different planet. They learn more about the Ninth Ray. Deja eventually goes back to Helios and her suitor in order to save John. When trying to later free Deja, John is captured by a Thern, who gives the requisite backstory and motivation for his character, including that Therns are just myths, and they don't exist as far as everyone else is concerned, and they've worked very hard to stay that way. John escapes, rallies the Green Martians, and rescues Deja just before her wedding in the climax of the movie. Deja and John do their own obligatory marriage, and when John lets his guard down and throws away his medallion, the one that lets him control all the Ninth Ray stuff, he's transported back to Earth by a Thern with no way to get back. That's the very, very brief, brief, brief version. A bit more is that besides controlling the Ninth Ray and controlling politics from behind the scenes and choosing who rules, the Therns stifle any attempt by others to understand the Ninth Ray. They claim that they don't cause the destruction of a world, they just manage it and feed off of it. Throughout the majority of the movie, John Carter is shirtless. In his interview, Richard Hoagland made much about how his significant other, homeopathist but not wife, Robin Falkov, is a huge movie critic and dislikes most things, but wanted to see John Carter twice. And Richard saw it twice. He said this in an apparent attempt to lend credibility to his analysis, but I have a hunch that Robin may have just wanted to see it for the tantalizing man flesh. But that's just my own gratuitous observation. In the end, I don't think it was a bad movie per se. Somewhat mildly entertaining, good special effects, and a modern take on a century-old view of Mars. It's not a movie I would buy, but it's one that I'd watch if I had an hour and a half of empty time. But that's not how Richard C. Hoagland saw it. Before I get too much into various plot points and themes, actually just two, there's the very location of a city that Richard claims shows that Edgar R. Burroughs was in the know. Now, 
I've got to ask you this. Did Burroughs, when he wrote his book back in the early 1900s, actually pinpoint Sidonia on Mars as an ancient capital city? You got it. How did he pick that? The ancient capital city of Mars in his Barstoom, you know, anthologies, all 11 books, was a place called Hors, H-O-R-Z, located in the northern hemisphere on the edges of a great dried-up ancient ocean. The sea bottoms, the dead sea bottoms of Barstoom is as he described them. And it was at zero degrees longitude, which, of course, is where Sidonia is if the DNM pyramid was zero degrees longitude in an ancient Martian system, and 42 degrees north, which is the longitude and latitude of Sidonia on Mars now. There are many things wrong with even this very basic statement of where the capital city is. First, Hoagland sounds like he is saying by the quote, the Dead Sea Bottoms of Barsoom, is where Hors is. It's not. He's just quoting some random passage from one of the books. In fact, it's the beginning of Chapter 3 of A Fighting Man of Mars that's describing where tribes of green Martians are. That's it. Hors isn't mentioned in that chapter, nor even in that entire book. Second, Hoagland is correct that Burroughs places Hors as equivalent to Greenwich on Earth, defining the Martian prime meridian zero degrees longitude. But that's the only thing that he's right about. He says that it's at 42 degrees north, but nowhere is its actual location spelled out as far as I could find. It's based on it being north, south, east, and west of certain other cities that have either latitude or longitude specified by boroughs. Various fans have tried to reconstruct a map, and I've seen whores placed anywhere from 40 degrees to 50 degrees north latitude, usually closer to 50 degrees. Sidonia is also never mentioned. Meanwhile, the DNM pyramid and the face on Mars are at 40.7 degrees north, 9.5 degrees west, not 0 degrees east-west on the prime meridian, not 42 degrees north as Richard claimed, and neither Hors nor 42 degrees nor 40.7 degrees are multiples of 19.5. Not that he claims that they are, but let's just put it out there. And then there's the issue of the prime meridian. It's defined for Mars by us today based on the location of a key feature. It was defined by German astronomers W. Beer and J. H. Madler in the 1830-1832 time period based on a small circular feature that they saw, and it was later defined by Schiaparelli in 1877. It was later renamed Sinus Meridiani, the Middle Bay, by Camille Flammarion. When we finally had good images of Mars from Mariner 9 in 1972, a small crater within a larger crater that was near that zero degrees longitude was defined as zero degrees longitude. And then it was redefined more precisely again based on the Mars Orbiter Laser Altimeter data around 2001. That's our definition. I can almost guarantee you that if a Barsoomian civilization existed, especially before 1830 on our calendar, they would have defined their prime meridian differently. Based on other clues, one fan puts it around 220 degrees west on our current maps, way far away from zero degrees, and very, very far away from the broad region that is Sidonia, and even farther away from the specific point objects that are the face and the DNM pyramid. 
And remember, the only maps that Burroughs used were the non-existent canals of Percival Lowell and various broad areas of different brightnesses and darknesses from Schiaparelli and others. Oh yeah, and then there's the fact that Hors wasn't really the Mars capital, that each race had their own capital, and that by John Carter's time on Barsoom, Hors had been deserted. So Hoagland is wrong. Other than that specific claim, Richard has two broader claims about the movie and similarity with real life. The first is the non-specific, as in I can't really give you a quote, idea that what is presented in the movie about what happened on Mars to destroy it and the idea behind the Ninth Ray are real. This is the ancient pre-disaster Mars we have been trying to back-engineer from the NASA data for over 30 years. Okay, I lied. I, I did have a clip. But this particular claim of the movie presenting his model for how Mars became like it is, at least based on the information he's given, directly contradicts his claims elsewhere that Mars was rendered lifeless when the planet V, or planet 5, that orbited in the asteroid belt blew up about 65 million years ago. See episodes 29 and 30 for more on that. But let's ignore this minor problem. At least in the movie, it seems as though the destruction of the planet's population is by wars, and the destruction of the planet as a life-supporting system is due to the massive machinery that was used in order to harvest its resources. I haven't read the books, so it may be different in the books. And by now I may have enough listeners that some of you have read the books, so if you have and you know why the planet was dying uh, in the books, please write in and let me know. As for Richard's claims of amazing, astounding, hyperdimensional torsion physics that are supposed to be demonstrated by this ninth ray stuff that I described earlier, it, too, is wholly incompatible with what he described hyperdimensional physics to actually be. Basically, he's described it in the past as energy that manifests in spinning objects or alignments or at multiples of 19.5 degrees on planets and moons and stars. And this energy alters the mass of other things, hence his uh, experiments with tuning forks. Specific statements and math and predictions that can be tested are very much lacking, despite his recitation of the idea in innumerable interviews. But you'll notice that nowhere does that sound anything like the abilities of the ninth ray that are described in the Burroughs novels, which are basically dis not described, but are used in their atmosphere generating plant. Nor do they match with the abilities shown in the movie, like changing your appearance, levitating, making an energy sword, or controlling someone's movement. It's not the same at all, by no stretch of the imagination, other than what's allegedly being kept secret, which is what brings us to the conspiracy part of the claims. This is really what he focuses on in the Coast to Coast interview, if you can say that Richard focuses on anything, and anyone who's listened to an interview of Richard Hoagland knows what I'm talking about in terms of focus. Richard thinks that this movie is an attempt by Andrew Stanton, the director, and or consultants, and or Burroughs himself, to get the word out about what really happened on Mars. The easiest way to get information which is secluded and sequestered and censored into the mainstream of the public is to do it through fiction. You can get away with almost anything That's if you right. do it as fiction. And then only your target audience 
that has other clues that it's not fiction will get the message. I think I remember from some psychology class in college or from somewhere else that when you think you see hidden messages and things and that they're directly talking to you, it's a sign of mental instability. But maybe I'm wrong. Richard's point here is just that, though. They're speaking directly to him and others in the know that, yes, this is what Mars was really like. But because the reviews of the movie were so bad, despite the copious amounts of hot, shirtless, sweaty, and sometimes dirty, hunky man muscles, uh, and that people were saying that it was a huge Disney flop, that it was being suppressed. An Arthur Clarke term, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic kind of technology that's using this science, this physics, to make amazing things happen. That's the storyline of John Carter of Mars, the regent of science under her father, the, the, the uh, Jeddak, which is kind of slash for king of one of these city-states, the Helium, um, has figured out, has back-engineered this secret suppressed science, which the Therns are using to systematically destroy Mars. And she says in one part of the film, and John Carter, Earth is next. I mean, Stanton is giving away all the secrets in this film, and that's why, in my political analysis, there has been this incredible, deliberate, systematic, concerted effort to keep as many people from going to see this film as possible because it's right up there on the big screen. In an attempt to put it succinctly, Richard wants us to believe that the therns in the movie represent the Illuminati, the Men in Black, the Archons, or some other MJ-12 secret organization in control of stuff on Earth, but in this case, it's on Mars. A group that works behind the scenes, orchestrates stuff the way they want, and are behind those that appear to be in power, etc, 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 etc. Not only that, but those people that are actually in control behind the scenes on Earth, just like the Therns on Mars, are attempting to control the public perception of the movie so that people won't go to see it, so that they won't learn the truth about what's really going on. This is the point in my Moon Hoax presentations where I say, if you're one of those people who believe in the conspiracy to this level, there's nothing I can really say at this point. Let's just move on. And there really isn't. This conspiracy mindset has less to do with astronomy, and science in general, than it has to do with giving more depth to the person who's making the claims. It doesn't mean that Richard is wrong, that these kinds of groups aren't in control, but most reasonable people recognize that the evidence for it is zilch, and that there are better explanations for John Carter not being a box office success. For example, the director had no experience directing live-action films. There were no marketing tie-ins that are typical for Disney. And it didn't have the Of Mars as part of the title, so no one knew what John Carter was. Review-wise, it did get mixed reviews. The complaints were mainly being that parts of the story had been done before, that it had an uneven pacing, and that sometimes the plot made no sense. As I said, I didn't think that it was that bad. So with all that in mind, I think that I agree with a poster on the JREF forum. Richard seemed to latch on to the movie because it was about Mars, and he desperately tried to shoehorn his ideas into the movie, despite that in so doing, it conflicted with many of his other claims. 
It was also typical of Richard in that he made the claims once, promised follow-up, and then never delivered ever again. There's no new news for this episode, but there is a question. This episode's question comes from Graham D., who asked in part, Firstly, assuming that the Earth was tidally locked, what forces would be required to break the lock and start the Earth rotating again? Secondly, is the highest point of the tidal bulge the best place to carry out such an operation? This question gets to a topic that I've discussed on the podcast before, pole flips caused by Planet X. The only way to change the geographic poles a significant amount is to apply a torque to the planet. In the narrative leading up to the question that I quoted, the situation is that a crew, an advanced human crew, placed their spaceship engine on a high point of the equator and turned it on to start Earth spinning again. That would do it, because you're applying a torque, an unbalanced force on one part of the planet. To see how this would work, you would need a frictionless surface, sort of like an air hockey table. Put the puck on the table and set it so that it's stationary and not spinning. Then lightly brush the edge of it with your finger. That's a torque. It'll start it spinning. It'll also move it a little, and in this situation Earth would probably move, but it would also be spinning. If you apply enough torque, you'd get Earth spinning back the way you want. Another way to think about this is that Earth is spinning right now due to it having rotational energy. This is slowly bleeding away due to tidal interactions, especially with the moon, but it has a lot of it for now. If Earth were no longer rotating, then to get it to rotate again, you would just need to add rotational energy to the system. As to where the best spot for this is, I would think that probably the highest point along the equator would be it. The reason is that this can be thought of like moving a lever. If you're really close to the fulcrum of the lever, that pivot point, then it's harder to get it to move, although you do get a larger motion. If you're farther away from the fulcrum, it's easier to move, although it moves somewhat less. Following that same idea of mechanical advantage, I'd say that if you affix your rocket engine to the highest mountain on the equator and flip the switch, that's probably the best idea in this scenario. That wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, though the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. In terms of feedback, there's one correction from last week, or last episode. Uh, the correction comes from Don D., a new listener who came in from the Cognitive Dissonance podcast. I had said in the geocentric solar system model that if Venus is closer to Earth than the Sun, then you would only see new through half phases, and that if Venus were farther away than the Sun, you would only see half to full. I was correct in the latter, but incorrect in the former. You could still see all of the phases of Venus if it were closer to Earth than the Sun. However, Venus would remain the same size. The fact that it changes size by a factor of six and those size changes line up with what you would predict from a heliocentric model remains solid evidence for a sun-centered solar system. Try saying that several times fast. 
With feedback done, it's time for the puzzler, where I attempt each episode to attempt to ask an attempted critical thinking-based question based attemptedly loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. All orbits are ellipses. Some are more elliptical than others, but there are no perfectly circular orbits. Why is that? Honorable mention to Dan M. for sending in an answer to the puzzler that got partway there. The reason that there are no perfectly circular orbits is sort of the same reason that we can't model the solar system out to arbitrarily long periods of time. Objects pull on other objects. For solar system modeling, this means that chaos builds up and tiny effects that don't matter in the short term do on the very long term. For this puzzler, it means that even a tiny pull on Earth by Venus or Mars or Jupiter is going to build up and it's going to perturb an orbit if it ever had been circular, making it slightly elliptical. It's highly unlikely that the planets could even form in a circular orbit to begin with, for that reason as well. This episode, with the main segment on John Carter, the puzzler deals with people on Mars, and it comes courtesy of the listener named Gold. The Guinness Book of World Records lists the farthest long jump for a male at... 8.95 meters, or 29 feet, 4.4 inches, and the highest jump for a male as 2.45 meters, or 8 feet, 0.5 inches. The movie, John Carter, shows the protagonist jumping at least several hundred meters or yards. Is that realistic, given the difference in gravity between Earth and Mars? If not, then how far should he have been able to travel, if you take the longest jump and the highest jump for a male in the Guinness Book of World Records on Earth. Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. And that next episode will be about the fake story of Planet X, Part 7, Claims by Mark Hazelwood. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please send it in. By way of announcements, a reminder, if you're going to TAM, I'm going to plan a little get-together Saturday night, probably during about 7.45 to about 9 o'clock. So, after dinner time, and it will be in a suite in the hotel. If you're interested, please send me an email so that I can give you updates. That's the podcast at sjrdesign.net. I have more than two or three people at this point, although the number is still under 10, so there's still plenty of room if you are interested. That wraps up this topic for the 79th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed it and learned something at the same time. For more information about this podcast, you can visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can send me a tweet, at pseudoastro. I'm probably about as easy to get in touch with as James Randi is, unless you're Sylvia Brown. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to send them in. 
Also, I do appreciate it if you would write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. Every little bit helps. If you liked it, also tell a lot of people. 